What are some of the all-time great debuts? Maybe you can think of all-time great rookie seasons in sports, or all-time great debut albums by musicians, or all-time great directorial debuts from directors. Uh, For instance, of course, I'm a hockey fan, so I've got to bring up a hockey player, Timu Solani, a name most of you may not know, a Finnish hockey player. Most years, the leading goal scorer in the NHL will score around 50 goals. As a rookie, Timu Solani scored 76 goals for the Winnipeg Jets, shattering the record for rookies. It's an all-time great rookie season. Or for basketball fans, there's Wilt Chamberlain. He was voted MVP and set records in points and rebounds as a rookie. Or in the world of music, you can think of great all-time first albums. I was talking to somebody recently, and one came to mind, the album 10 by Pearl Jam. I grew up in the 90s up in Washington, so that grunge scene was home for me. Pearl Jam's first album. Or Weezer's Blue Album. I don't know if anybody, am I alone in that? Some might argue for Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction or Van Halen's first album. There's all sorts of competitors for best first album. Or if you're into movies, maybe it's hard to top Orson Welles' directorial debut in Citizen Kane. All-time great debuts. How about preachers? This morning, we have an all-time great first sermon from Peter. This is his first time, as it were, up in the pulpit, speaking before crowds and masses, giving his debut sermon. And I'm not sure if anybody will ever top this one. Because as he preaches the, the first sermon of the church... 3,000 people are converted. The question for us today is, what prompted this sermon? What was Peter's goal? What was his agenda for this sermon? We know the background. We talked about it last week. It was the festival of Pentecost. Jewish people from around the world were gathered there in Jerusalem to celebrate the harvest and the giving of the law. And there in the midst of them were the 120 or so followers of Jesus. And then something strange happens. A loud noise like wind, tongues of fire rest upon them. They start speaking in different languages and telling of the mighty works of God and Jesus Christ. And a bunch of people say, what is going on? What is the meaning of this? And a bunch of other people say, I think they're drunk. As they speak gibberish, languages they couldn't understand. So the crowd was divided as to what the meaning of all this was. So Peter stands up, and here he addresses the crowd and attempts to give an explanation of what has happened. What does this mean? So today we're going to ask and answer the very simple question, what does Pentecost mean? What does Pentecost mean? What is the meaning of all of this? How does Peter, how does the Holy Spirit through Peter, explain what has happened at Pentecost. And then we'll see, at the end, what kind of response does this demand? What does Pentecost mean? What response does it demand? We're going to walk through this long text together, and we'll see that uh, Peter explains Pentecost by going to three Old Testament passages. We'll walk through those. And I love this because like a good Baptist, Peter has a three-point sermon here. It's perfect. Lay it out. Three Old Testament passages. We'll walk through those together. In the first one, he turns to the 
Joel 2 and quotes that to explain what has happened. And here, Peter tells us that the day of salvation in the Spirit has arrived. That's how you could summarize verses 14 through 21, and Peter's main point there, that the day of salvation in the Spirit has arrived. You want to know what Pentecost means? Here it is. Here's what it means. It means the day of salvation in the Spirit has arrived. Peter makes that point from Joel 2. Look at verse 14. But Peter... Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So there Peter stood up with the other eleven, and then we have kind of a subtle reference to Matthias, who has just joined them, completing the twelve. And he stands up among the apostles, he addresses the people, and he says, listen to me. And a few uh, months ago, our youngest daughter started to do something like this, I think maybe from her parents. She started to grab our faces and say, listen, listen. Right? We say, where did she get the gall? And then we realize, probably from us, telling our kids, listen. But Peter does the same thing. He's grabbing the whole crowd by the face, saying, listen to me, I've got something important to tell you. And again, like a good Baptist preacher, he starts off with a joke. Kind of tongue-in-cheek, he says, these guys aren't drunk, it's only 9 a.m. Some had supposed that those speaking in tongues had gotten into the wine, and Peter says, no, 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 that's not the case, it couldn't be. It's only the third hour of the day, maybe five o'clock somewhere, but not here. <laughs> not on Jerusalem time. And because he's speaking to... Jewish people, he goes to the Hebrew Scriptures and goes back to Joel 2, and he quotes Joel 2, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The first and important point that Peter makes here is that the Spirit has been poured out upon all people. That's what you're seeing here at Pentecost. The Spirit has been poured out, and the Spirit has been poured out indiscriminately. Not just on the leaders, but upon all people, regardless of status, male or female, young or old, high status or servants, on all people, on all all of God's people, the Spirit has been poured out. This was the wish of Moses that we talked about in Sunday school this morning from Numbers 11.29. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. And Peter, quoting this passage from Joel, says, this is how you will know the Spirit has been poured out. All people will have the signs of the Spirit on them. They will prophesy and dream dreams and have visions and you might wonder, like I do here, when you read this, say, okay, this is what is supposed to be going on, or this is a sign that the Spirit has been poured out, and yet I've never had um, what you might call like a charismatic vision. 
I don't think I've ever experienced what might call it an ecstatic, prophetic utterance. I haven't experienced that personally. And yet this is promised. So how do we square that? Has something gone wrong? Are we missing something in the church? I don't think so. The point Peter's making here is that you'll see all sorts of people, young and old, male and female, have visions and utter prophecies. And that's exactly what happens throughout Acts. We're going to see that. Male and female prophets, young and old, having, we're going to see visions in Acts. And that is a sign that the Spirit has now come upon the church upon all people in the church. And I would say that even if maybe you and I, or maybe you have, I don't know, but for myself, I haven't experienced like what we might call a charismatic, prophetic utterance. We all, as Christians, speak the revelation of God as New Covenant Christians in a way that the Old Testament prophets never could. We can speak the truth about Jesus Christ written down in our prophetic book. And as we speak that, we prophesy greater revelation than, again, the Old Testament saints ever could. We speak prophetically, and in fact, we do this as a community. The whole church community is a prophetic witness in line with what Joel is talking about. We actually all together preach Jesus every week. Do you know when we do it? When we take the Lord's Supper, what, do, what does Jesus say? Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You are preachers, speaking prophetically. We all do this together. So this church has this collective prophetic witness. You'll see it in instances of dreams and visions and prophecies, but together we all show that the Spirit has come in our witness in fulfillment of Joel 2. And then there's some other strange things that Joel 2 talks about. Sun darkened, blood, moon, ominous signs of fire and vapor of smoke. These are all apocalyptic images taken from the apocalyptic genre of literature. And whenever you hear these kind of words together, these signs, they are metaphors of the end. Metaphors of world upheaval. As I was actually reading this, a song came on in the background of my playlist, I See Fire by Ed Sheeran, which is part of the Hobbit soundtrack. And it's a song about smog desolating the town and fire and smoke and all that. But he's using all that prophetic imagery to describe the day of destruction coming upon this town. And that's what that means throughout Scripture. Whenever you see these types of um, pictures, it's talking about the coming world-upheaving judgment of God. Or as Joel refers to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day where God arrives and changes everything and turns the world upside down and judges the world. The saying, you will see these signs of a world upheaval before that day of judgment comes, 
before the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus used the same language as he talked about his own return. Luke 21, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Before that great final day of the Lord comes and the Son of Man returns in power and glory, everything's going to go crazy. Just as an aside, this is, I'm going to stand way over here just to say this is speculation time for Mary, or just musing thought. We as Christians, of all people, should not be concerned about climate change science or even deny it maybe because actually Scripture's been predicting climate change for 2,000 years. We're way ahead of the curve on this. Right? We know that before the end comes, things are going to get crazy in the heavens and the sky. So as we hear that, we say, oh, okay, the earth is ending. We know. And the call is, be prepared, because that's a sign of the day of judgment coming and Christ returning. And the first sign of that may have been right in the day of crucifixion, because what happened? In the middle of the day, the sun darkened. And Peter's point with all of this, and quoting Joel 2, is to say, all these things happening, and all, all the and things going crazy before the day of the Lord comes, all of these, and the Spirit pouring out, and what you see, all of it is a sign that we are in a different age now. We are in the last days. I remember going to college, and going into my biology class, and the professor of the biology class saying, I don't care whether you're here or not, I'm not going to take attendance, do well on the tests, turn in your work, that'll be what your grade is. And I thought, oh, this is different. I'm not in high school anymore. I'm, like, responsible. They're not taking my attendance, and he doesn't care whether, and nobody cares whether they're there or not. It is up to me to be prepared. It was a sign that I'd entered a new stage of life. Nobody's looking over my shoulder. It's up to you. Right? And as you go through life, there are signs you've entered new stages. So somewhere along the line, you just start having pains just by waking up. And... You wake up, and that's hurting now. I don't know why. That's a sign. And then as you get older, you find out there are all sorts of doctors you never knew about. And that's a sign that you've entered a new stage. And Peter's saying, these are signs. What you're seeing here at Pentecost is a sign. We've entered the last days before judgment. So be ready and call upon the name of the Lord, and all who do will be saved. The Spirit outpouring means the day of salvation of the Spirit has arrived. So call on the Lord. And then the question is, who is the Lord? And that's what Peter answers next. And what we find here is that Pentecost is ultimately about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In verses 22 through 32, he goes to Psalm 16 to make the point that the Davidic Messiah is the resurrected Jesus. That's his point in verses 22 through 32. The Davidic Messiah is the resurrected Jesus. All of the people of God were looking forward to the Messiah. Who would be the Messiah? Who would be the son of David, the king, after David's line, who would rule over Israel and save Israel? Who would be that Messiah? Peter's point here is that Jesus Christ is the resurrected one proving 
that he is the Messiah that David himself predicted. The Davidic Messiah is the resurrected Jesus. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So I'll stop there. And Peter now, remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the crowds of Jewish people gathered to celebrate Pentecost. Meaning, he's speaking to the leaders and the rabbis and the scribes and and all the people who were responsible for killing Jesus 50 days ago. He's speaking to all of them and says, you remember that Jesus guy you killed? That takes boldness. That crucifixion would be fresh in everybody's mind. Peter had watched them crucify his Lord, and just a few days ago, really, Peter had denied Jesus because he was so afraid of being caught up with him. Now, Peter is no longer not afraid of being associated with Jesus. He's saying to their faces, you killed Jesus the Lord, and laying responsibility at their feet. What can account for Peter's sudden boldness? And the Spirit has empowered him. And he speaks boldly and prophetically. He says, you're responsible for this. But it wasn't an accident. In fact, it was the very plan of God. You and the lawless men there, I think he's referring to Romans. You conspired together to kill Jesus, but even in doing that, you were not outside of God's sovereign plan. This is his plan from the beginning. As Isaiah 52 and 53 predicted, the suffering servant would be sacrificed for the people. It was always God's plan that Jesus would be crucified, and it was God's plan that he would be resurrected. And Peter says that the pangs of death could not hold him. That's an interesting phrase. It's a little bit of a mixed metaphor. When we think of pangs, what do we normally think of? Labor pangs. The pangs of labor is a normal phrase. Maybe some of you are thinking growing pangs. But Peter here is intentionally using a kind of a labor metaphor. Now, how many of you have stayed perpetually in labor. Now, it may have felt like it, but even in your longest, hardest days, you know this thing will come out eventually one way or another. Why? Because it's impossible for a child to stay in the womb. Eventually, the child must come out. And Peter's using that metaphor and saying, in the same way, it was impossible for the grave to hold Jesus Christ. He had to be released. It was not possible for death to hold him because God had planned to and did resurrect him. 
Jesus is the resurrected one. It was impossible. Even though you tried to kill him and are guilty for it, God had always planned to resurrect him. Now, why is that significant? Peter quotes Psalm 16 and says this is why. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here is the Psalm of David. And David, in this Psalm, writes confidently that the Lord will not allow him to be held in Hades, will not allow the Holy One to see corruption. David is writing confidently that the Lord will not allow his king to die. That is what that psalm is about. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You will not let your Holy One, your king, your king on the throne of Israel, you will not let him or his body be corrupted in the earth. And Peter's point is that David ultimately is not writing about himself, but writing about Jesus. Peter's saying that psalm, like all psalms, is about Jesus Christ. Why? And Peter makes a very obvious point. David died. And so did every king after him. This psalm is about how God will not let his king stay in the earth, will not let his Messiah, his Holy One, stay dead. And yet every king, including David himself, has died. Peter says in verse 29, Brothers, I, must, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, in the realm of the dead, nor did his fleshly corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter is saying, this psalm was about Jesus, because it can't be about David. We know where his tomb is. We can go see his dead body, or at least his tomb. We know he's dead, so it can't be about him. It is about the one who God would not let die. That is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The one you killed is the resurrected Messiah that David spoke about. He stayed on the throne forever because he's raised up to eternal life. He is the only one, the only king who can make good on the psalm, this prophetic Psalm 16. And Peter says with boldness, you killed him. How's that for an evangelistic strategy? He's not worried about offense. His goal is to lay the truth out before his audience. And says, you are responsible for the death of Jesus, who in fact was the Messiah God promised. And he can say the same thing to all of us. You 
are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. Had we not sinned, had we not rebelled against the Lord, there would have been no need for a sacrifice. But as it is, every single one of us has rejected God and born in rebellion. And every single one of us needs the crucified Savior for our sins. We have one in Jesus Christ who has conquered the grave. We have hope in him because he is our resurrected Lord. The resurrection is proof that he is our Savior because death is our great enemy. I don't think uh, ever again I will ever trust anybody who says I don't fear death. That's something I think Christians say a lot. And in one ways we, some ways we should say that. We don't fear death. But I will never buy that again because of the experience of the last two years. I think we do. I think we fear death. And it's not wrong to fear death. There's something very right about having a fear of death because it is a horrible enemy. Death is horrific. And it scars us. And it crushes us. And we need some king to save us from it. And Peter says, here he is, the one that God resurrected, the Messiah. And you might say, that's great, but what does that have to do with Pentecost? And here's where Peter's going to tie that in. Go to verses 33 through 36, and here he quotes Psalm 110. And he will explain that not only was Jesus the resurrected Messiah, but Jesus also is the one who is enthroned on high. He was not only risen from the grave, he has seated, he has been seated at the right hand of God. And from there, he pours out the spirit that you now see. So Peter's third point in his three-point sermon is the enthroned Jesus is the Lord who sends the spirit. The enthroned Jesus is the Lord who sends the Spirit. He has been resurrected and he has ascended to the right hand of God. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here Peter's sermon culminates in this capstone point, saying this is what all this commotion of Pentecost means. This activity of the Spirit proves that there is one who has sent him. And Jesus is that one who received him from the Father at the right hand of God and sent the Holy Spirit to you. And again, here Peter contrasts Jesus with David. So David died and stayed dead, therefore he did not ascend to the right hand of God. But we saw 
There were many witnesses who saw Jesus do that. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. And in fact, David wrote about this as well. Prophetically through the psalm, Psalm 110, David himself wrote about the Lord who would sit at the right hand of the Lord. So here's David speaking about two different lords. And he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm speaks to one Lord who would sit at the right hand of the Lord. And that's who Jesus is. He's the only one who is worthy to sit at the right hand of God, to, to take place next to him. There is only one who has been worthy to do that. It wasn't David. David stayed dead. But Jesus is the one who ascended and took that seat. And he is the one who reigns now until all enemies will be under his feet. It's not Peter's main point, but I want to camp out there for a second because there's an important implication here. That Jesus reigns now and has reigned forever until all enemies will be crushed under his feet. What does that imply? It implies that we live in the midst of a spiritual war. That there are enemies of Jesus Christ. And that one day he will crush them all and the war will be over. But make no mistake, we live in the midst of war. And I bring that up for a couple of reasons. First, just because that there are many Christians, and myself included here, we tend to forget that. Just in the many days we have here on earth, we get real cozy and comfortable, and we think, oh, this is just nice and peaceful and and we start to expect it to be peaceful and expect no resistance and just kind of go with the flow of life here on earth. And there are times where we need to be reminded that we actually live in the midst of spiritual war. There are enemies of Christ, death being chief amongst them, and Satan and spiritual battle going on. You're in the midst of war. So how are you preparing yourself for that? How are you fighting it? How are you trusting in the Lord in the midst of it? That's one of the other points here, is sometimes we forget we're in the midst of war and just get really comfortable with life here and then start to be kind of swept along with those who may be enemies of the Lord. And so I want to have us think about for a second, how do we fight that battle? How do we resist the enemy. What does that look like for Christians to fight this battle? We need to be reminded that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's spiritual. And and because of that, the means by which we fight the battle are spiritual. The means by which we wage war on this earth are spiritual means. And remember, in fact, that we have one Lord who is our captain and our chief, because at times we forget who our Savior is. And we often look to other saviors who are going to fight the battle in an earthly way, and we look to them and say, you give us power, you give us influence, we'll follow you, because we recognize we're in the midst of battle, and we just need somebody to fight for us. We don't care how he does it or how she does it, we're just going to follow them, because we want to fight, and we're sick of fighting, so we do somebody who will fight for us. And we end up following the wrong people, whether they be pastors, authors, politicians, whomever. We look to all sorts of earthly saviors who are going to fight in an earthly way. And whenever we do that, no matter what gains we may think we may make, we lose in the end because we cease to follow Jesus. 
So we remember that we have one Lord and he dictates how we fight. And how do we fight the battle? Spiritually. And with the characteristics of the king and the kingdom, meekness, humility, persecution, and poor in spirit. We fight with prayer, with the truth of Scripture, standing on the truth of God, humbly engaging with love and peace and reconciliation, with mercy and kindness and love and joy and peace. We fight as Christians because we have one Lord who sits at the right hand of God. And he is the one who sends the Spirit who empowers us to fight and stand in the Spirit. We bend our knee to nobody else but Jesus Christ. Talked about this a bunch in Rome. There was all sorts of pressure to bend the knee to another, to call Caesar Lord, and there would be trouble if you didn't bend the knee to Caesar and call him Lord. But Christians refused from the very beginning because we have one Lord. That Lord Jesus Christ has the authority from the Father to send out the Spirit of God. The Spirit comes from Jesus. And so, to be in the Spirit is to be all about Jesus. I think that's one of the interesting things about this sermon that Peter gives. How did it start out? Start out as a question of what's happening here, all this spiritual activity. And you might anticipate that Peter is then going to give a, a long exposition of who the Holy Spirit is. But he doesn't. He ends by focusing on who Jesus Christ is. I find that fascinating. Because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit focuses us on who Jesus Christ is, teaches us about Jesus. And whenever you see the Spirit active, you will see Jesus proclaimed. And wherever you see Jesus proclaimed and lifted up and enthroned, means the Spirit has been poured out. The sermon is all about Jesus, because the Spirit himself is all about Jesus, and the Spirit's work is to convict the world that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Is Jesus our Savior and Lord? Not just Savior, but the Lord who we obey. 
if the Spirit's at work in you and in us, we will be convicted that we must not only see Jesus as our Savior, but also our Lord, who we follow. The enthroned Jesus is the Lord who sends the Spirit. And that's what happens here. The Spirit is sent. Now, what is the response? We see that in verses 37 through 41. Jesus said that the Spirit would convict the world regarding sin and unrighteousness. That's what happens here. The Lord has sent the Spirit, so the Spirit convicts. In verses 37 through 41, we see that the Spirit of salvation is for all who confess Jesus as Lord. Peter has told them what Pentecost is about. It's about Jesus Christ who is resurrected, ascended to heaven, who has sent the Spirit to usher in a new age before he returns to judge the world. That's what Pentecost is about. Now Pentecost demands a response. And in that response, we see the Spirit of salvation is for all who confess Jesus as Lord. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here's what Peter has done. He has walked through Old Testament scripture. He has exposited the scripture, and now there is a response, and the response is conviction. They were cut to the heart, and they asked, what must we do? Now, here's what I find fascinating about this. Peter did not have the musicians come up and start playing a song, and he did not manipulate, he did not dim the lights, say, now everybody bow your heads. And if you're feeling I just want you to raise your hand. And there was no manipulation from Peter. He, he, we don't get any hint of that. He didn't set the stage just right so that people could respond and create the right environment or mood. All Peter did was just tell them about Jesus and lay the truth before them. Now, I'm not saying that any of those other things are bad or wrong. I'm just proving to you that they are unnecessary. There is no altar call here. Because true conversion is not dependent upon skillful manipulation. I'm not saying altar calls are bad or wrong. I'm just saying the greatest conversion moment in history didn't come with one. Because true conversion is dependent upon the Spirit of God working. And the Spirit of God works when Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Those two go together. Peter proclaims Jesus. They are convicted and cut to the heart. So they respond. They're the ones who initiate. They initiate the salvation moment. They say, what do we do? Tell us. They have become convicted. They were responsible for killing the Messiah. So out of conviction, they say, what do we do now? So Peter responds with a promise. Repent, be baptized. You will be forgiven and you will receive the Holy Spirit. We see here that repentance is more than just a feeling of guilt because they're already feeling guilty. Right? That wasn't enough. They had to not only feel guilty, but they had to repent. That's what Peter's telling them to do, which is a turning. Turn away from your former life. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from this crooked generation. 
change. That's how you demonstrate that you believe. Your faith, which saves you, will be evident in some kind of repentance, some kind of turning. And then, positively, be baptized. Every one of you. For the forgiveness of sins. So what Peter is doing here is is telling them, this is how faith evidences itself. This is how you can know that someone has been converted. This is how you profess your faith. Peter will make clear later in his own letter that baptism, the actual going in the water, that mechanical act isn't what saves you. But it is a demonstration of your faith. So this is how Christians through all time have professed faith. If you really believe, if you really have faith, it will evidence itself in changing your behavior and being baptized. And if those two things don't happen, then we have reason to question whether the faith is there in the first place. Because that's what Christians do. This is how you respond to the gospel. So somebody asks, well, how do you know somebody's converted? I say, well, do you see a change? Not just say, I believe. Demons believe and shudder. Like, is there change? Is there repentance evident? This goes beyond just saying, well, I looked at all my options of cultures and philosophies that I liked, and I chose this one because this kind of aligns with myself the best. So I I like this kind of Christian community thing, so I'll just go with them because this fits my, my cultural background, and I prefer that. True conversion is far more than that. True conversion is, I know I am guilty before God and judgment, and I believe in him. So I'm changing and I'm turning from my former life. And I am publicly demonstrating my allegiance to Jesus. We do that through baptism. Everyone who shows their faith in this way has a promise. You will be forgiven. And you will have the Spirit. It's a promise for all people. Peter speaking here again to Jewish people, and so I think when he says this is a promise for all people, for your children and for those who are far off, I think he's first and foremost speaking about all those they may have back home in all those other countries and saying for them too. He's talking about the, the Jewish people scattered across the nations, but I think he also has, or at least the Spirit has in the back of his mind, talk about those who are far off, This is for Gentiles also. And that will become very clear over the course of Acts. Now salvation begins with the Jewish people, but it is for all people, all who call on the name of the Lord, will be forgiven and have the Spirit. So Peter pleads with them, flee this crooked generation. Confess Jesus as the Christ. And again, he's talking to Jewish people, so he's saying... Flee your background. And if you want to be saved, come to faith in Jesus. 
There's a lot more that can be said, and there's a lot more Peter did say. So this wasn't a short sermon from Peter. With many words he spoke to them. This is justification for long sermons. Luke records just a part of it. But we know the result was. 3,000 people are added on that day. The Spirit was at work. It is estimated there are about 200,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. So this is a great harvest of people, incredible numbers, 3,000 in one day, and there is a lot more work to be done. And there were 200,000 in Jerusalem at that day. And we might look around us in Johnson County and say, there's so many Christians here. Do we really need to go out with the gospel? Yes. There is and always has been a lot more work to be done. And many who have not yet heard the call of Jesus Christ, but who will respond when they hear it. We asked in the beginning, what does Pentecost mean? We have four answers. The day of salvation in the Spirit has arrived. The Davidic Messiah is the resurrected Jesus. The enthroned Jesus is the Lord who sends the Spirit. And the Spirit of salvation is for all who confess Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus is the reason for the season. We're in these last days because Jesus has ascended and sent out his spirit and all can come to faith in him. And the call to you is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will be part of the spirit-born people of God and be saved from the day of judgment. you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that explains the day that we live in. We live in the same day uh, that Peter did and the apostles did. We live in the last days. Spirit poured out. Jesus enthroned on high. Awaiting the great day of the Lord to come. As we live in these last days, Lord, I pray that you would enable us and empower us to live by the Spirit, to make much of Jesus Christ, to make little of ourselves, and to call on all to put their faith in the Lord before he returns. Lord, as we do that work, just give us a lot of grace. Forgive us for when we fail. Strengthen us for the great work we have ahead and the battle that we live in. Give us rest and peace in your Son. Amen.